Listen up. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the podcast participants and not to any participant's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. You know, for fun. So lighten up and enjoy. Oh, stomping Jen. Hello. Oh, hello. Here we are again. Again? Yes. And as per the norm, as per the huge, I'm very excited. Um, We're talking to another amazing artist this evening. I love talking to artists. Yeah, me too. And the artist we're going to be talking to is Tristan Dunn. He's an artist who focuses on making handmade wire-wrapped jewelry, right? And I just want to add, in 2019, Tristan was runner-up in the prestigious Saul Bell Jewelry Design Competition. So he won second place in that competition. We're going to talk a little bit about that, and we're going to talk about his art and some questions about his process and his journey to becoming... Um, an award-winning artist. Cool. Are we ready? Uh-huh. All right. Well, let's, let's do this do thing, okay? Yep. All right. The Soft Serve Podcast. Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. Stomping Jen, I can't help but sing your name. I love this music. Did I tell you that? Mm-hmm. I tell you that every time, don't mm-hmm. I? Mm-hmm. Do you have a propensity for singing to me? But I also said that I love artists and talking to artists yeah, so right we should go and do that yes yeah, so without further ado let us say hello to tristan dunn hello tristan hello thank you guys for having me yeah thank you for joining us um i always like to start um by inviting our guests just to tell us a little bit more about themselves so um you know, I, I only skimmed the surface, I imagine. So um, if, if you could be so kind, just tell us a little more about who you are and um, what you do. Sure. Well, the business name that I go by is Gemhenge. It's a mix of the word gemstone and Stonehenge. And I've been an artist uh, since I was four years old, as far back as I can remember. And I've been a jewelry maker for exactly half my life. Uh, so I started when I was 12 years old and I'm 24 now. And then the name Gemhenge came to me quite randomly at 13. And I'm a bit of a crystal miner too, at least uh, originally, because I lived in an area where I could mine my own crystals. And so I try to be as connected as possible to the art form that I make. And as a result, I sort of think of myself as Gemhenge more than Tristan quite often. Cool. That is really interesting. Um, Where did you live where you could go out and mine um, these gems? Well, when I was 12 years old, I moved uh, to upstate New York in this small little farming town. And, you know, that's a little bit hard on a kid as well as a little bit boring to be in that area. It all came together well. I made friends and such. But at first, 
was a bit of a loner, but I found out that if I went into the forest there, and this is just about a 50 square mile radius where these exist, you could find these quartz crystals. And so that was my solace. That was my activity after school. And then the summer, just go up into the woods and pick crystals out of the dirt. That is amazing to me because I literally cannot walk into the woods and find anything other than leaves (laughs) and sticks. I'm not kidding. Like I know people um, who like possess this ability to go in and find like salamanders or spot like certain types of birds or Mm. um, did you, um, Tristan, did you have to develop like this skill to be able to go in, in there and find um, gems or like, did you read about it or is this something you just stumbled upon and like figured out on your own? Well, of course, I knew uh, that they existed in that county. It's really Herkimer County is like the only place you can find them. And then I started to gain a little bit of a skill for it. Uh, you recognize there's a stone in the area called Dolmite or Dole Stone, and it's just gray. But you start to get used to seeing specific tones of gray, and you're kind of like a hunter. You're like, oh, they must be near. Or there's a much cheaper, much more common kind of a rough crystal called calcite. And when you see that, that's another indicator that you're getting close. But sometimes I think they find you. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. I'm sorry. I just have to cut in. I'm so super jealous because I love rocks so much. I know you do. (laughs) I'll send you some. I'll send you. I have buckets of these things. Oh my gosh. Stomping Jen's favorite spot at the, what is it? The the Natural History Museum. Natural History is the gem and mineral room. (laughs) I've always been obsessed with rocks. Yeah. Um, and so Tristan, you, you focus, um, you mentioned you, um, are a jewelry maker and you, right now you exclusively work in producing wire wrapped jewelry. Um, could you tell our listeners just a little bit about what that form of jewelry is? Wire wrapped jewelry. I think some people may not be familiar with it. Sure. Happy to, um, the name explains a good bit right off the bat, but it's a very pure art form. There's, um, other art forms that have branched off of that, but wire wrapping in its essence is working entirely with wire and crystals. Um, sometimes beads, or you could work with bone, there's other materials, but the basis of it is it's hundred percent wire. And so the only tools that you truly need for that are your hands and pliers. And so it's something that can be very mobile. Like I like that I can do my art form from pretty much anywhere. Um, and a lot of people think it's a very ancient art form it's both ancient and extremely recent. And because the gauges, uh, the specific thicknesses and kinds of wire that I work with haven't existed throughout all of history. Those are rather recent. Wire has existed for a long time, but the very advanced uh, coils and techniques and weaves that you see in my work and many other people's, it hasn't been possible to make that because the gauges that are required to make that haven't been forever available. But if you do go back 36,000 years Coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, there's two places on Earth where the very first wire apps uh, happened to be in ancient Iraq and in the 17th dynasty of ancient Egypt. So these two places that are very far apart both had the first wire apps then, but it's just a single coil. It just looks like a spring. The modern wave of wire wrapping as we know it is, it's hard to document it because it's pre-internet, but they started popping up around the 1980s and they were kind of associated with hippie culture. And now they're branching into everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, can you explain a little bit to our listeners what, a, um, I don't want to say that you have what a typical piece of yours looks like, but maybe just a a select piece might look like, you know, it might have one gem in it or like a whole bunch. And the 
you start you start with like multiple wires, right? And you you create these like pendants or other forms out of all of these sometimes hundreds of pieces of wire, right? Yeah. Yeah, there can definitely be hundreds. I kind of like the challenge of adding as much as possible because you like to be able to say that at the end. You know, um, every little bit of wow factor that you can add to your description is also going to help uh, your business side of things. Um, but it all starts with one wire, of course, one at a time is all you can hold, but they do end up being quite a multiplication of that process. And uh, the best thing I could do to describe uh, through words and just through audio what my wire apps look like is I've always leaned into geometric wire work. Mm-hmm. Or not always, I'd say I'd rather started that about five uh, four or five years into my process, I started making geometric wire work because I started to realize that that was a huge minority in the art form as a total, um, which I found uh, forms for that online and such to see other people's work. And I realized there's such a minority still of wire apps that are geometric. And so I leaned into that because it's fun and fascinating to do, but it's also a competitive angle. So I try to make my wire apps feel like uh, the stained glass you see in churches, but not based off of any specific religion, but more like a, a universal spirituality, something that you can look at and, and think of the spirit, but think of it in a non-denominational sense. Yeah. Like sacred geometry. Yes, exactly. Sacred geometry is a big staple of uh, everything that I do. That's interesting. Um, and I want to encourage everybody right now, as you're listening to this, just to like hit the pause button and go to um, Tristan's webpage, um, Gemhenge. Um, check out his Facebook page and his Instagram and scroll through some of the forms he's created um, out of um, these wires and these gems and and other materials that he described. And um, I think it will help as we go along and talk a little bit more. So go ahead and do that and then um, come back and listen to the rest of this. I mean, I think it's really important. While you're listening to it. Yeah, or while you're stomping Jen. Once <laughs> again, you have proven why you're my co-host. You've come with the good ideas. Um, oh, and, and no, And I'm glad you actually mentioned sacred geometry because it was, I knew I'm aware of that concept mm-hmm. and I wasn't able to tie it into this. So mm-hmm. I'm glad you actually evoked that. Um, that... Um, that is really interesting. And Tristan, you've said um, in other interviews that you've done that your creations are like frozen snowflakes um, of meditations um, on life. Can you tell us a little bit more about that idea and that concept? Happy to. Um, though, let me ask real quick for your viewers, and because I'm very much business-brained, uh, do you have my website or my Instagram linked in this, or should we spell Gemhenge for them just Um, to make sure? Yep. No, that's a great question. And I will link all of those things in the show notes. Yep. So, um, so listeners, you go hit up the show notes on whatever platform you're listening on and you will get the links there, but that's great. Yep. Thanks for bringing that up. Okay. So, um, to go deeper into that, I think all artists kind of consciously or subconsciously are trying to trap the ephemeral we can kind of feel an emotion coming through us, or we can feel uh, we can have contact with a very beautiful experience in nature or spiritual experience, or um, again, an emotional experience. And we want to capture it somehow. Like musicians just want a song that can express how they felt inside. And then people feel drawn to music because it speaks how they're feeling better than they can articulate it because they might not have that talent. 
And so I also feel drawn to that with my wire work where I felt these perfect moments of inspiration and really divine places and everything is temporary. It's fleeting from you. You want to try to grasp it. And so a lot of what pulls my passion forward in this art form is trying to kind of capture the, the purity of a moment and put it into wire work or the purity of other sources of inspiration can also be like, like music. If I uh, listen to a really beautiful symphony, I think, how can I put this into shapes? And it can translate very directly because when you're listening to a symphony, for example, or any other music, it's all wavelengths. It's all vibrations mm. of different heights and different widths. And that can translate into different densities of wire patterns. And so in some pieces, I'm literally trying to directly translate sound into work. But if you're looking at a beautiful natural vista, you're having all these colors enter your eyes. And these are photons of different wavelengths too. So that's a visual symphony in a sense. But that sunrise will pass, that beautiful tropical beach that you might have had your honeymoon on, you won't be there next month. And so how can you take these colors that might remind you of very specific and beautiful moments in your life and put them all in one place that you can just hold it's small. You can take it with you. You, you know, you want to cradle it. You want to trap that moment and have it forever. And so I try to offer the closest thing to that. Yeah. And how do you, as an artist um, who has these experiences and these reflections, and you're trying to translate them into this um, more permanent form, how how successful do you think you are in terms of um, representing those those experiences and those things you're, you're, you're attempting to, I'm really curious, like, do you, do you finish a piece and you're like, wow, that really, that really captured that sunrise that I, that I saw that's now gone. Do you, do you have that feeling when you're done with a piece? Well, with like a, a sunrise, for example, I have to give the gemstones a lot of the credit for that, but I could also make sun rays coming off of that. And that would be, um, you know, on me, I think, uh, wire wrapping, represents really directly trying to defy entropy, which is the inevitable process of everything's going to separate, turn into dust and whatnot. Um, but I'm using wire to use tension and compression and hold everything in place and trying to just seatbelt gemstones into their settings and look beautiful in there. Yeah. And Are they, I, you don't poke holes in them, right? You're, you're literally no, wrapping No, I mean, I, some people think I'm working with beads, but uh, I almost get a little annoyed when I hear that. Not not super, but I just want people to understand. I'm like, this is actually really tricky. Um, and also, if I feel like you asked about, you know, do I feel I'm successful at that aim or not? I think most artists have both archetypes within them of extreme confidence and extreme insecurity. Mm -hmm. So when, when I make a piece and I'm aiming for something, one voice in my head is like, you're a god, congratulations. And then another voice in my head is like, what are you doing? That could be so much better. Right. How do you, um, do you, is being aware of that tension enough between those two voices or is there, do you ever try to reconcile that? Um, I know at the end of the day that I make pretty things and I try not to let that go to my head and that's not too hard because I'm not particularly famous or anything. Um, and it's actually really good to have uh, my business name be Gemhenge rather than my own name because the, the praise that I do receive is just going to what my hands do and not myself as a personality. And so, you know, my, my hands feel the sort of praise rather than 
uh, my whole being, it feels like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just, I was just thinking about something. Um, so, I mean, these pieces, some of them are made of um, these metals that are relatively non-reactive and stable. And these gemstones have existed for a long time. Like you're taking these things and putting them into a form that is likely going to outlive us all by, um, I don't want to say eons, what does that even mean? But like by um, millennia, probably some of these pieces could endure for thousands of years. Well, there's a very first examples of wire wrapping that are 36,000 years old. Jesus. They're just tarnished. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. they're just tarnished. Um, I really hope it outlasts me. I, uh, that's part of why I went with the name Gemhenge because it's a mix of the word gemstone and Stonehenge and Stonehenge is, um, on a surface level, this ancient mysterious sort of geometric arrangement of gemstones that most likely people think it had some sort of spiritual significance. They don't really know what they're why. Um, and it's also very impressive of how it came together. There's a lot of theories there. And so I really hope that, one day people look at my work thousands of years from now and think of it like Stonehenge, but just with gemstones. Yeah. I'm getting chill stomping, Jen. Looking I'm um, I'm looking at some of these pieces, Tristan, and I just was reflecting on that, that these things will, you know, un- unlike maybe like an oil painting or something else, which which in theory could if mm-hmm. it was preserved correctly, but these things, you know, you throw if you threw them in threw it in a a hole in the ground and buried it. Somebody could dig it up a couple thousand mm-hmm. years and it'd still be intact. But what were you going to say, Stone? Is it Jen? is it hard to, to to part with these pieces after you've made them? A little bit, but you know, I am I'm the parent of these things. I'll make more. Mm-hmm. Um, also, on just uh, how long these things last. Consider that the the stone that I was talking about mining called Herkimer diamonds which aren't technically diamonds, but they're some of the world's best quartz. So they might as well be. Um, those are 500 million years old. Jeez. It's so interesting to me when we start conceiving about the geological time scales with these, these pieces in relation to our human lives. Mm-hmm. Right. And take, taking these elements, like Tristan said, that have been around for hundreds of millions of years. Um, and the metal that has been in the very center of the earth in liquid yeah. form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, are these mostly pendants or are they yeah. like pins ever? Or like I'm looking at um, like a piece that looks very large. They're like 95% pendants because mm-hmm. uh, that's mostly what people order. Now, if someone asked for a ring or earrings, I would happily do it mm-hmm. um, or a pin. I really wanted to get into making sculptures eventually, but pendants mm-hmm. is a good market. A lot mm-hmm. of people want a pendant. And because pendants can be much bigger than earrings or rings, there's more room for the artist to express themselves. Mm-hmm. You get to say a bigger story. It's like if you were a painter, would you rather say things on uh, the size of a business card or something that's one foot by one foot or something that's 10 feet? I think the middle suits well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm, and like I said, I'm looking at some of these pieces, Tristan, and I'm absolutely drawn to these to this piece that it's like um, looks like it's made of black black wire and a whole bunch of purple gemstones in it. It's absolutely transfixing to me. Oh, is it my uh, flower of life? It it might be. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's what it is. I yeah. have that on my arm. A, a piece like that. So I, I want to ask this, like in acknowledging that every piece you make is, um, you know, has a life of its own and a, and a, and a seed 
of life that generates it of its own. Can you can you give us a sense of how you um, how you how a piece like that begins its journey um, from raw materials like to a finished piece? I'm really curious. Well, the flower of life, for example, um, is a specific symbol that exists uh, before me. I am the only person to have made it out of wire work, as far as I know, and I do kind of look these things up quite extensively, but I certainly didn't invent it and I don't own it. So anyone's welcome to try it. I Mm -hmm. I just don't have anything like a tutorial out yet because that would be a lot of effort. Um, I, uh, so, so with that, I'm aiming for a specific design and in my head, I can kind of pre-plan it. I don't draw anything up before I make it. I really never have. Um, a couple of times I've done a very loose sketch to give the client an idea and give them some confidence to send forward some budget towards me. But for my own creation, I don't do that. And creating something like the flower of life gets very mathematical. I'm doing little equations in my head mm-hmm. and creating things that aren't based off of any one specific thing. I create as I go entirely. I don't have um, any plan. I just kind of receive the answers as I go. Um, I don't know what the piece is going to end up like when I'm making it. That's that's more fun for me sometimes. I've made the flower of life about 12 or 15 times now and can replicate it pretty well. Wow. Do you use, um, I know you meant, you mentioned, you. so you, do, you don't do a lot of drafting in your kind of creative slash slash design process or sketching do you use like digital tools in any ways like computers or anything like that or you really just kind of letting the materials in your hands kind of in your mind guide you and whatever is inspiring you guide you um yeah i really do that i i refer to it as channeling Mm -hmm. um which you know is a term that's mostly used i think in some people's minds that means like an oracle whose eyes roll to the top of their head and has some interesting mumbles about the future but um, I try to go into a meditative state, meaning I'll meditate before. But if your mind is clear, if you're not filled with your monkey mind, then visions come come through you uh, less diluted. And I think the best an artist can be is an unclogged faucet for creativity to flow through because great art doesn't come from us. It comes through us. And so that's another area where I try to remain humble is that um, I got to get out of my own way. An idea wants to come through and I'm a humble servant of that idea. I'm here to bring it into being, but it's, I'm not the source of it. Do you have a, um, do you have a particular meditative practice that you use to, to help you kind of get into that, um, optimal creative state? Um, I'm, I'm a purist. I like to keep it simple. So sit on a bolster and just focus on my breath. I know there's a lot of different forms of meditation. Um, close my eyes for a little bit. Cause when I'm working, I like to watch movies. I listen to music. I have conversations with friends and that's very joyful, but it's a lot of stimulation. Mm-hmm. And so to reset myself in between different pieces, I think it's good to have a moment of no stimulation. Into- or go outside, you know, just yeah. be present with nature for a little bit too. Take a break that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, where do you typically um, create your pieces? Um, and I'm curious if the environment you're creating in has an influence on your work and your process. Massively. Um, a lot of them, especially during this winter, uh, I do them in my bedroom, which is half set up to be a studio. I've got a very cushy chair, uh, that's quite ideal for the posture that you might wire up in all day. And I'm very blessed there because friends will come through or just watch movies. And so I, I get to have a very fun day and get paid to do it. Um, 
And then I'll go outside when the weather's nice. Like I just spent a couple months in Costa Rica because I was getting depressed this winter from spending all day inside. And I had a busy schedule with my customs, but I thought, why not do it on the beach instead? So I'm really grateful I was able to get to do that. Um, inspiration is like when I say great art comes through us, not from us. Your environment has a lot to do with that because that's inspiration uh, coming through you. It's like uh, one candle lighting many others. And so I put myself in places like if I'm making a tree of life, which is a motif I've done many times, I make the piece leading up to the tree wherever, maybe in my room, maybe on the porch, but the tree is always the very final step of those pieces because uh, you make the frame for the tree to attach to. Yeah. And then I'll climb a tree and do that part. Uh-huh. Um, but I think often of uh, something that inspired me many years ago when I watched a little documentary about the um, jazz god, John Coltrane, he went to uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, the sites of the dropping of the atomic bombs, you know, obviously one of the greatest tragedies of this whole uh, planet. And when he arrived there, it was way after these things had happened. It was, you know, just a historical site, but he went right to the center of the spot where it had hit the ground. And one of his friends was describing this. What he did is he just really calmly closed his eyes, got really silent, put his hands in front of this. There's no spot you know it's just ground there's nothing to touch he put his hands in front of it closed his eyes for a few minutes and he was aware that that bomb falling created so much incredible sadness and suffering that he wanted to put himself directly in a place and not just intellectualize it back about uh intellectualize back about that in america and try to have that feeling convert into his music because jazz is very beautiful sad music often yeah. And so he just wanted to really have direct contact with that sort of inspiration. And so environment, you know, can mean everything. Yeah. And I, I, it's interesting. I've talked about this a couple of times in a couple of different contexts about trees on this podcast. And I, I find, I find them to be endlessly fascinating, um, especially since we've, you know, we've learned just like in the last 10 years that they, they, are connected and communicating with each other in ways that we previously didn't understand, like been you know beneath our our feet um, through these fungal networks. Yeah, and they use they, the mushroom Wi-Fi. Yeah, I mean that that is so fascinating to me. Um, and you know they're transmitting energy and talking to each other, whatever you know, whatever that communication you know means and looks like to to trees. I don't know. It's just fascinating to me. And so do you feel, so you feel, I mean, you feel connected when you're up there, right? And you're, you're weaving these things and do you feel it like an energy or is it, I'm just, that's so fat. I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm, you're postulating. I'm postulating. You're correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, I'm very spiritual, whatever that means to different people. Mm-hmm. But um, in that sense, I, climb up on the tree and I put my hands into it, uh, just against it. Um, just like I was describing John Coltrane did in that site. And I close my eyes and I just whisper a little prayer. I say, mother tree, thank you for holding me. I ask to be held safely and not to fall. I am grateful for you. Thank you for breathing me and supplying my lungs with the oxygen you give. And I ask to sit upon here and create, and I pray that divine inspiration may flow through me so that I can make better art and continue to honor, uh, just your beauty and maybe ultimately raise more reverence for the rainforest and uh, help a little bit less of it get chopped down. But I also want to 
donate. Um, I don't do it yet, but it's a goal to set up on my website. A percentage of all my tree of life pieces would benefit Amazon conservation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when you were in Costa Rica, were you able to visit um, the forest and see maybe different types of trees than you're used to? I didn't um, do any epic bushwhacking, but I was mm-hmm. by the jungle the whole time. I wasn't really in the cities. Um, and I did go kind of deep into it. Um, and there were howler monkeys and sloths and stuff I'm not used to. And so that was just so refreshing to be in a new environment, but I liked the density of it. Um, yeah. that was, that was the aim is to be in something that's very dense because trees are just natural geometry. You're surrounded by different kinds of geometry and all trees have this fractal pattern of one trunk and then two and then four and eight, 16 kind of thing but they all find a different way to do it. You can tell these species apart and that's like wire wrapping. There's a lot in common with every single wire wrapper, yet we all find a different way to have that energy flow in and through us just like trees. Yeah. Did you, I just want to stay on Costa Rica for a second. Um, I just will share like anytime I've been to New York city, for example, like you feel the energy of the place, right? Like it, it is like a palpable different, energy than what I'm used to anyways, like where we're from here in Western Massachusetts. And I'm wondering if Costa Rica and where you were like in the, in the near or in that forest when you were there, could you feel like a different energy of the place? Is that something you were able to pick up on? Yeah. Every, everywhere's got a different flavor. Um, for me, New York city feels very fast, tense, and I can sort of feel the suffering that takes place there because there's hardships, but also the wealth. I feel like the streets are paved with gold. And in Costa Rica, I just felt um, kind of just tropical uh, essence flow through me. A really common way of greeting and saying goodbye there is people just say uh, Pura Vida, which just means pure life. And so they understand just in saying that the most amazing thing and, and the most important thing that they have going on there is that they've got incredible nature and that's purely sacred to them. So just being around that kept me in the headspace of while I'm working with these natural crystals, I want to honor them and I want to create pieces that sort of mimic natural patterns to uh, emphasize the reverence that I have for them. And do you think, are you, are you coming, um, coming back from Costa Rica with some lasting impact on your kind of creative mind, maybe your process, anything like that? Well, the, one of the biggest blessings of that trip, which I was there for two and a half months was, uh, that was the first time I sent myself out of the country on my own. And I've been to Canada a bunch of times with my folks, but, um, that was, that was big. You know, I've, I've sent myself to Florida a little bit in the winter when I need to get away and get some sun. But even a couple of years ago, I was really struggling financially and I refused to get a job. I just made this art form work through me through a lot of struggle. And so getting to go to Costa Rica, spend all that time there, getting to stay at some really nice uh, inns and hotels and, and houses, um, it kind of symbolized, you know, quote unquote, making it, whatever that means, which is more of a spectrum than a binary. But I got this feeling out of it that I had achieved a goal that I've been yearning for for a long time, which is um, I am driven by many forces for my art, but one of it is so that I can travel. I just want to open up the freedom to explore this amazing earthware pond that has so many different uh, energies around it. So I want to explore that makes my inner child feel alive. And I got to do that and paid for it by my passion. So it was very symbolic. That's amazing. And I'm going to give you one of these for kind of, you know, for, for reaching that, 
that point. I think that's incredible. Um, I'm, I, I just want to go back a little bit. I think you answered this. Um, a lot of the artists we talk to on this podcast talk about um, getting into a, a state of flow when they're creating, right? Where yes. that stuff outside them, if it, if it doesn't entirely cease to exist, it's at least muted and they're entirely immersed in the experience. Is that is that something you experience when you're working on a piece? Most definitely. Yeah. Um, the flow state um, is found in many forms, like a, a mountain biker circling that going down a hill, you know, and they just, they don't have it pre-planned out, but their cells know exactly what to do to keep them alive and, and give them that rush. And I used to get something like that when I was a kid, I would just like rock hop in the river, you know, and you do it at a fast pace and you somehow don't hurt yourself most of the time. But with wire wrapping, I don't pre-plan it mostly. So I'm traveling down this road of like, okay, do I bend the wire right? Or do I bend it left? Do I bend it up? Do I do a right angle? Do I do a cute angle? Do I put a weave here? Do I do a coil there? Do I put this gem or that gem? And it's exciting to me because I'm also like, if someone were watching over my shoulder, they don't know what the piece is going to be like, but they kind of see it along the way and it's cool for them. Yeah. It's more or less the same for me. And it, it's not quite as epic or dramatic as mountain biking, but it does put me in a similar state where I'm just fascinated to see it unfold and I'm traveling down the, down the hill with it. And do you, um, as an artist and as somebody who is um, tapping into inspirational states, um, do you ever have periods or moments where inspiration is hard for you to find? Yeah. And that's, that's um, something that happens to all artists, but uh, boredom is a really useful tool. It's our um, subconscious showing aversion for some reason. And then it just means that it, it wants to be listened to. Your subconscious is asking uh, you to look at it and make it conscious and ask yourself, well, why am I bored? Why do I want to take a break? And so, you know, it's, it's never good to just spend a lot of time scrolling on your phone and when I start to catch myself doing that, I ask myself, why? Why I'm not so passionate about working on the piece? And occasionally, you know, it's some ideas that I'm just not absolutely thrilled on, but would love the income from. And that's not ultimately the goal. I want to make what I'm purely passionate about because I deserve that because my customers deserve to feel like the love that went into that. But when that happens for you, take a break, you know, do some yoga, go for a walk, take a bath, uh, get a meal. But if you try to push it, that doesn't always serve the creation being its best. Yeah. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about that stomping gen, the taking a break. We so rarely do that in this um, kind of goal, you know, it's just everybody's going a hundred miles an hour all the time. Right. Well, except for the pandemic. Did, did we slow down? Yeah. A little hmm. bit. Yeah. A little bit. Did the, um, Tristan, did the pandemic have an impact on, on your work and like your creative process in any way? Um, I don't know if this would have happened uh, without the pandemic, because as an artist goes along and time is linear in a sense, you're only ever going to get a more of a following. You're only ever going to get better at what you're doing and you're only ever going to um, grow your income. But it seems like it lined up with the pandemic. My business just grew. I've never done better. Mm -hmm. And I'm not entirely sure all the factors. I know some people are making more from unemployment than they made previously. Um, 
yeah, I don't really know what all the factors were or if that's the reason, but it helped my business. It really helped my business. Or maybe that it didn't help my business, but my business has been doing re- really well during this time. I just wish that uh, every country was open to go and travel. I'd, I'd like to do a lot more, but in a sense, this um, time of the pandemic, while it's been very hard for many people, on one layer, what it is, is it's this sort of womb where we have to spend many months inside an enclosed space. And hopefully other people are using that time to kind of gestate um, a new version of their self. And if they've got passion to entrepreneurial drives, put energy and focus to that, especially if they lost their job. So I've been trying to use this time to uh, grow a seed of, of the next um, unfolding of what my creative potential can be. And so I've been pushing myself really hard because I've been at home all day and expand the quality and the innovation of my work, which will then correlate to uh, the growth of my budget to make even more epic things. So this pandemic has inspired me. Yeah. Um, Since you've mentioned, since you mentioned it before, I'm curious um, when you talk about maybe making um, different and more epic things, um, are, are you thinking about and playing with and exploring ideas of doing larger scale work? With with wire or other forms of sacred geometry, something like that. Absolutely, that's that's the dream. Um, I mostly find myself daydreaming about creating wire temples, and I don't believe in skipping too many steps, like trying to jump up a staircase, because then you don't have. Like if you go from making thousand dollar to five thousand dollar pieces all the time, and then you try to make a hundred thousand dollar piece, even if you make it, you might not have the client base there for mm-hmm. you. So I do want to make massive temples, but on the way there, I'm going to make a one foot temple and then I'm going to make a two foot temple. Um, but the dream is to make a temple the size of, um, well, for an awful metaphor, a porta potty, um, but something much more profound and wonderful to spend time in than that, uh, or, or a cell phone booth, you know, for, for something better, but um, using the same gauges of wire I currently work with, the same thicknesses, same size gems. And, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, connected to any specific religion, but I've been into different kinds of temples and it always captivates me. It's always this feeling of uh, that these high ceilings and arches are poking right up into heaven. And so I want to create a uh, an experience in an incredibly detailed small temple that is a distillation of that. So, so literally in the way that like vodka is made, for example, is taking this low grain alcohol and extracting it. So it's even more pure. And I want to take these uh, religious, these sacred divine experiences, or for people who, you know, might not connect with those words at all, just take these experiences of bliss and nature and appreciation of emotions and condense it into this one temple that you could spend time in. And hopefully just by stepping into it, you'd break down in tears and also wonder more deeply about your universe. That sounds amazing. And tens of thousands of wires, if not hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of gems. I want to spend multiple years of the time on these things. Yeah. Wow. Have you ever uh, considered, sorry, this is my Big picture brain thinking. Let it fly. Um, like looking for like an agent, like a like an art agent, or like getting grants, like New England Foundation of Art, or something like that, to 
implement or execute some of these ideas that you have? Well, I definitely think every artist should see what other options they have because most know that nowadays, like get on social media, try to grow that, you know? Yeah. Um, but actually just about a month ago, I did uh, work. I, I did start with an agent. I do have an agent now. Mm-hmm. Cool. And uh, he handles my messages for me. I've spent a lot of time in my inbox, just responding to people who don't necessarily follow through, which is a certain percentage and it's understandable. But um, he finds clients for me. He's got a lot of connections to the mm-hmm. millionaire and even the billionaire circuit. And so um, he'll do all the talking and then uh, he'll acquire the materials I need. Right. He'll, I'll see the payment show up in my account and I'll get a little sketch and, and the bulletin point of details and I'll make it happen. And yeah. I'm really, really grateful for him. His name's Joshua and I deeply appreciate him. So he'll listen to this and I just want him to know that I love him and I'm grateful for his efforts because what an artist wants to do is just make art all day, right. stay in flow. And that's the motto we're operating on. So he knows that he makes more money if I can stay in my productive flow state. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're helping each other with. Right. That's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. I and wanna... he might help me get that funding for a temple, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope you, um, I hope you're goal. able yeah. to get there. I want to, I want to go in there. My, my skin was tingling when you were describing it. Cause I love um, and I'm not a I'm not a religious person, um, but I definitely um, consider myself spiritual. I love going into places of worship, whether it's a, a Buddhist temple or a Catholic church or a synagogue. Like there's just something about them that makes you pause, right, and ponder. Yeah, I just love. Well, I the love creativity that. behind it is so much different than um, I don't know any building on like Wall Street where those are still really impressive, but those are done for a specific function. Like this is a place to make money. This is a place to get investors. This is, you know, for that reason. And uh, a temple is not made. I mean, churches are definitely a business, you know, different religions are definitely trying to make a ton of money, but that's not really the purpose behind their creation. They're just trying to inspire. And you can't say that about something you'd see um, on wall street again, as an example. Yeah. So it you can feel maybe perhaps what we're tapping into on one level when we go into buildings of worship is we feel maybe the emotional state and the intentions of uh, the very creators of it. Because I think that's something that affects art. And I try to keep an eye on with myself is even if I'm in a bad mood and I'm trying to replicate a design I've made before, I can do it and it would look the same. But I try to not think mean thoughts or try to just be a positive person and also indulge in like good things, not watch like serial killer documentaries while I'm working on my pieces, because in case that's why that's part of why you feel that feeling you feel in the Holy building. Um, I also think therefore that could be felt in my artwork. So I try to put the best in it in the physical and the metaphysical sense. Have you ever, I'm curious if you've ever had a piece of art um, that, or, or, or a, um, a piece of jewelry maybe you had to set aside or you wanted to start over because you found yourself maybe manifesting negative energy into it. Sometimes when I feel that way, if it's really intense, like, um, you know, we all have some tense moments in our life that ultimately exist just to teach us. But for a while you might find yourself holding a grudge and 
that's like one of my least favorite states to be in when they happen. I know that I want to let go of them. They're just not easy to let go of, you know? And so I, I can find myself really frustrated by something like that. And then I'll just set the piece down for a little bit and again, go for a walk or something. But then again, sometimes the piece is what helps you emotionally because it, it quiets the mind. Um, but I also say mantras, uh, like, um, as monks have their, uh, 108, uh, mala beads, their prayer beads, and they say one mantra per bead either in their head or, or very softly. And then they move to the next bead and it keeps them out of pace and in kind of imprints in their minds, the purpose of the mantra they're saying, as I coil my wires, I believe that perhaps I'm trapping, uh, words into it. And so I'll repeat over and over um, also so it becomes part of my subconscious. I am loving awareness. I am loving awareness. Mm. I am loving awareness because to me, that's the best a human can be. It's just pure unconditional love and pure consciousness. I've got a long way to go, but I know that's the North star. And I also hope these temples can inspire people to that direction too. Yeah. I was just reflecting on, as you were talking about grudges, like how good it feels to hold a grudge, right? But then when you're, well, there's something about that, but then, then you, when you are able to let it go and release it, you have this moment of like, what, why was I doing that? This feels so much better, the releasing of the grudge. And then I was thinking to myself, Tristan, as you were talking about that mantra that you speak when you're wrapping the wires, like, um, why do we have, why do we have to, um, practice and build up the skill of of loving awareness as as creatures you know because we have to it's like anything else it's like a a muscle you have to exercise in a way well, i kind of um yeah no i agree um because every human experiences suffering and every human makes mistakes i can't find a single exception um but i i so I, I study different psychologists and philosophers and Carl Jung had this perspective um, and I'm not quoting him directly on any of this, but I kind of learned from how he described it. He was big into this idea about the shadow that every human has an archetype within them of the potential for ultimate darkness and evil. And also the opposite that we obviously have the potential to be Christ-like or Buddha-like um, and just purely loving Um so we have both, you know, the devil and the angel on our shoulders, one way that's been represented throughout history. And so why would we have both? And I kind of guided by things that I've been taught when I've studied his work, come to a conclusion that if we were just beings that automatically were designed to be only good and weren't even capable of tremendous harm then that's not quite as powerful as beings who are capable of both, but then choose to be good. To be able to grow to that makes you a truly good and righteous person. And then you can inspire others. Yeah. I love that. That's beautiful. Um, so I want to, I want to rewind the clock a little bit back to um, young Tristan. Um, and I was reading your bio and um, in it, you're describing how um when you were in in second grade, you you or others discovered in you this kind of um, it's described in your bio as an unusual and exceptional ability to imagine and create in three D. And you describe a, an incident with paper clips um, in the oh, bio. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just wondering if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about that. That's uh, I I forgot about it until you said paper clips. Um, 
that's that's one of my favorite stories. It was stressful at the time, but um, you know, because the stress a, a second grader knows is is much less significant than what an adult knows, but it's the most significant, you know, at that time I got in trouble at school for something. When I think about my start of wire epping, I'm like, oh, I started that at 12. And then I remember that story and I'm like, well, not quite. Yeah. So in second grade, um, I just stole a lot of paper clips from my teacher and I didn't have pliers and I made sculptures out of them. And we had these desks that could open and close. Um, and you had to lift the whole desk up in such a way that it would, uh, anything on it would fall off if you did it. And then it was just this container for you, your pencils and, and your paper. And I, re- I remember those desks. So I, um, I hid my paperclip sculptures in there and steal a few each day when she wasn't looking. Um, could never steal like a hundred at a time. And then I tried to like, we were learning cursive. And so I tried to make cursive letters or little animals, but most of them are just abstract nonsense because, you know, a paperclip is it's hard metal and it's a short length. So you can only do so much with your hands. They weren't, you know, masterpieces. They might've um, reminded some of Alexander Calder, who's also one of the earliest wire rappers. If we get, uh, technical and how we define the start of it um yeah they're just experiments but that's how the brain eventually becomes a greater creator is you have to play you have to be okay with making totally random weird stuff that's not profound or impressive and then uh the desk inspection came around once uh every two weeks or so where the teacher was like all right let's see if you're keeping the inside of your desk neat (laughs) and so she came around and I was sweating bullets, you know, that's, that's like <laughs> one of the first versions of like, Oh, I've really done it now. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, some of the most anxiety that I know at that stage in my life. And so she opens up my desk and she sees hundreds of paper clips in there, like truly. And she's very upset and she's totally angry. And she goes and she's like, I'm gonna call your mother. I'm going to tell her about this. She called my mother my mother, uh, on the phone was like, that's horrible. I'm so sorry you did that. I'm very angry at him. You know, I'll scold him right away. And the teacher is satisfied with that response. And then my mom picks me up and my tail is in between my leg. And I'm like, oh boy, mom's mad at me. And she just like pats me on the back and she's like, that teacher's an idiot. I'm so sorry you had to deal with her. She should be encouraging your creativity. So what my mother did, and God bless her for this. She's always, uh, my mother and my father have always been incredibly supportive and helpful with my artistic journey. She went and, uh, bought me a couple boxes of paper clips so I could give one or two to the teacher and then keep working with them on my own. I'm going to give this to your, um, to your parents. <laughs> yes. Cause that, yeah, my, uh, parents are where I got, um, I mean, I'm just very blessed to have had such great ones. My dad's an incredible salesperson. He's got that vivaciousness. And then my mother's a gardening author. She's very creative, you know? So some artists are just creative and don't have a good business sense. And some business people have no creativity. So I got to be raised by an equal balance of both. And I'm forever grateful. Yeah. And it, and it seems seems you're taking, you know, you're drawing elements kind of from both of them and creating this this new thing in your own experience, which is which is amazing in and of itself. Um, and when you were a little bit older, you found your way into kind of another um, 3D expression of, um, of shape. Um, and bending and twisting things um, in origami, um, and there's there's another really interesting story in your bio about how when you were eight, you managed to get yourself um, into this kind of adults only origami workshop. Can you tell us just a little bit about that experience? Sure, I get uh, happy just to be reminded that I got so many beautiful things of experience, you know, and they're not always yeah. at your fingertips. Um, 
So what happened there was um, in a, I had actually been making origami since I was four years old. It started rather basic, but um, my next door neighbors, and, and maybe they listened to this. So thank you, John and Cindy. Um, growing up, they gave me an origami book and a bunch of origami paper at four years old. These were neighbors that you're actually, I was very connected to. Sometimes you don't really know your neighbors at all. Um, but they were very nice to me and my older brother. And they gave me this origami book and origami paper and I became obsessed. And I'm really glad I did because I didn't really get into video games. You know, I just spent a lot of time making artwork. And so that's something that helps your brain grow. Constantly making origami, sometimes by instructions, just sometimes by experimenting. I invented a few things too. And um, when I was eight years old, so four years into origami at this point, there was a museum near me about an hour away and it was having uh, an origami exhibition. That was the main exhibition. The whole museum was turning into origami um, primarily for about a month. And my mother took me to go see and the person, um, uh, there were many artists in the exhibit, but they were all the big names and you wouldn't really know them unless you study origami. Um, but these sort of names resonate as like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles of the origami world. So I got to meet Robert Lang, um, who's really the biggest name in that world. And he's done amazing stuff. He makes amazing art, but he also um, engineers things for NASA that involve origami, as well as he's uh, the creator of the modern um, stent, you know, what you put to like expand your blood vessels yeah, or catheter. Um and also the airbags that are in cars that needs to be origami to unfold really quickly. What? And so I am, yeah. blown, I am absolute. I'm, that's like, him. When I hear you say it, I'm saying to myself, you should know that sawtooth, but that's amazing. He has a PhD in engineering and he's a really nice and humble guy. So I went there and there were other kids there, but I was one of the youngest and I was looking around at all the artwork and my mother heard that there was a class that was going to be adults only because it was rather advanced origami. And if you've never started origami and you try to jump to the advanced, it likely won't work. You should climb a bit of a bridge and get some bases. So he wanted to make sure the museum wanted to make sure that this class wouldn't be out of reach for the, like, so the people in this class would be able to do it. And so they made it adults only 18 plus and me just being eight again, I can't enter. And my mother asked the museum and they said, no. And, she said, well, could you um, take a box of origami? Can I send you a box of origami? Can you just show it to the artist and just ask him? And they said, okay. And both of my parents have fought for opportunities to happen for me. So another, like, I can't take every single credit for how well my career has gone. I've had a lot of help along the way. And this was one of those examples where she sent the museum this box and it had just origami she picked up that was lying around the house and then she heard back from the museum and they said, yeah, the artist is like inspired by, you know, um, the effort of and ambition and ex how excited this kid is to get to uh, go into this art form. So let's help him out. And I got to attend that class, one little kid, you know, surrounded by all these adults. And I was capable of making what we did. I think it was a koi fish with like scales um, from just one square piece of paper with no cuts uh, as origami is traditionally. And then the person leading the class, Robert Lang, after the class, he came just right up to me and he said, want to go get lunch? And my jaw dropped, you know, I was just like looking up at him like a sequoia tree. Yeah. And he took me out to lunch and we sat down and he said to me, 
would you like anything? Like, can I make you anything out of origami? And I said a guinea pig because I had a pet guinea pig. And also because I looked up online thoroughly and there were no origami guinea pig instructions at that time. And he thought, and he's like, well, I don't know any origami guinea pigs, even though he knows literally thousands of things. But he closed his eyes and thought about it for a few more seconds. Then he invented an origami guinea pig on the spot, which I still have. But just the experience of having someone in that position and of that age and of that level of accomplishment sitting down with me and and one-to-one and giving me that time of day sticks with you forever. God damn You know, it. huge blessing. And I'm very young now, but I hope to become that person for people later. My skin is tingling, Tristan, when you tell that story. <laughs> I mean, I'm not that, even kidding. you know, in the origami world, that's the equivalent of like um, Mick Jagger or, I mean, Keith Richards, rather, he's the guitarist, sitting down with like a young, young guitarist and saying, let me show you some chords, you know? Yeah, but I, I mean... I. A, there's a, several things that fascinate me about that. One is the like the the expert mind, right? That he has these deep like neural structures where he's just tapping into and he's drawing on his millions of hours of experience of folding paper and origami art, and he's able to summons out a guinea pig. Like that's amazing to me, right? Like yeah, and he then uses calculus to do that. Yeah, and then what? and then that he you know, took the time to, you know, spend, to spend with you as a, as a younger developing artist and, you know, and, and look how it's paid off. Like, so all you artists out there listening to this story, you know, I just soak that in. You, you can have a real impact. Um, Each a kid. Yeah. Yeah. That, oh, or if you're God. a parent, you know, try to get your kid any version of that opportunity. Yeah. Like I've also gotten to teach some origami classes. And those are really significant moments uh, in my life. Uh, can I ramble about that a bit? I think absolutely. it'll uh, be very wholesome. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so again, I did origami before I ever started wire wrapping. Um, and then when I started wire wrapping, there was this middle phase where I combined them and then I got more obsessed with wire wrapping. But when I was about uh, 10 or 11 years old, um, I, well, when I was in uh, fifth grade, so that is around that time, I was going to a school um, where it was just a public school, but uh, at the end of the day for fifth graders, there were sort of electives for the last 30 minutes. And there was like a juggling class. There was like an Italian class. There was um, like a drawing club, a chess club, and there was like 10 different classes. And I, because I had been boosted with the confidence that I could accomplish things by my parents, I asked the school and I'm like, can I lead an elective? And I was definitely the only student who asks that, at least as far as I know, but they let me do that. And so the last 30 minutes of every day, I was teaching like 15 other kids uh, origami. Um, And I did that for a few months. And then when I was like uh, 14 or 15, my stepmother, who um, my stepmother Karen, who is incredibly connected in Boston, she was in the local politics and she knew some influential people. She communicated with the director of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston and got an opportunity for me. Uh, it didn't pay anything, but that's never what it was about to teach origami to this um, city program that makes art uh, that makes camp free for poor children or children from poor families. And so all these kids who might have lives that are kind of hard in some ways um, or, or void of a lot of uh, excitement in some forms, they got to go to the summer camp and they weren't all based around art, but 
I sat down with these kids um, every other day for a whole summer. These little kids, um, well, maybe they were like eight to 10, but I was like 14 and I taught them origami and that was beautiful just to see the light open up in their eyes and realize that even though, you know, they might go back to their house where their parents aren't necessarily wealthy, they can just take a piece of paper and turn it into hours of entertainment and something that might make their parents smile. And some there's, you're never going to run out of potential to figure out origami things. There's no end of the road with that. And then uh, one more story I'd like to share about that. Um, And I appreciate you guys just giving me the space to share stories. Yeah. I, um, so at uh, like 14 again, I, um, again, through the help of my stepmother too, she got a connection where she said, you got to go to this place at this time, I'll drive you and you're going to be teaching Haitian refugees origami. And that was around the time the awful earthquake had happened. And I went into this room where there was maybe like 60 Haitian refugee young adults. They were between like 20 and 30, I'd guess. And me being about half of some of their ages, I was, I I was kind of, I felt out of my depths. I'm like, I'm supposed to teach these people. They're all older than me. And I didn't know much about the situation in Haiti, but I knew that it was incredibly tragic and that they had to be transplanted from there because they couldn't survive there. And so they were kind of crowded, you know, it's not like they're being put up in an amazing hotel during that time. And I walked into this room with all of them and there were tables and I'd had a bunch of packs of origami paper, which my stepmother had bought uh, for me to bring. It's very affordable, but I didn't have money. So she bought it and I put pieces of paper in front of all of them. They sat down and were incredibly attentive. They were super polite, which was different than how I perceived Americans at the same age. You know, some mm-hmm. of them were like still just upper teenagers and you know how those can be. Yeah. So I got to sit down with them and I taught them all different things, origami with this bright and colorful paper in this gray room after they had had this incredibly horrifying experience and they lit up. It was so beautiful. I got to see like the art is a superpower. You know, yeah. I got to see these people like have tears of joy in their eyes and it, it was contagious. And they came up to me at the end one by one. No one prompted them to do this, but they all came up to me at the end and shook my hand and gave me a hug and thanked me profusely and took photos of me. Oh my uh-huh. God. That's okay. You did it again. I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> I, this is, <laughs> I love hearing these stories. Um, you do that at 14 or 15. It just, you just internalize like, oh, I'm capable of anything. Yeah. Geez, and um, another thing in your bio, I, I have to, I have to mention because it, it, it's almost like an um, archetypical experience, like you see in fictional stories about the 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 high school kid who finds their way to a magic shop, right, and gets befriended by you know an older magician and begins to learn the craft of magic. And I was reading in your bio that when you were in high school. Um, you kind of had a similar experience and that you became friendly with um, um, some proprietors of a, a local um, gem and bead shop. And maybe this, this is what began to cultivate your, your love of gems. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, yeah. You just reminded me of all the great memories. Uh, <laughs> shout out to Kim and Adam at Fall Hill Bead and Gem Shop. And, and you can look up their website and get, great access to Herkimer diamonds and other beautiful things at fall hill beat and gem shop. And we'll throw that um, in the show notes too. Great. Yeah. I'll send you that link, but, um, or just fall hill beat and gem.com. But, um, so at 12 years old, I moved to this town in upstate New York and 
I, like I said, I was kind of bored and confused and a little sad because I left, you know, my friends and where I grew up and all that. So I needed to find outlets for entertainment. And while I'd always entertained myself with origami, I was exploring this new town and I was setting that to the side for a bit and just trying to find um, my footing in this town. And this town sort of had um, I, I, a bit of a, a redneck energy, at least some of my classmates, like I was really shocked in this town. Some of them had like Confederate flags on their shirts. And so that's part of a reason I didn't have like a ton of friends there, but I found this opposite aspect of this town. There's this beat and gem shop run by a beautiful woman named Kim and her husband has dreadlocks down to the ground and there's prayer flags everywhere and there's incense burning and there's playing like Bob Mara and the grateful dead. And I was like, Whoa, this is really different. I like this, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not like, I, I don't, I have nothing against the farmer kids, you know, that's their lifestyle, but I didn't have anything in common with them. And so I went to this place and so it kind of molded the personality I took on too, but it was the first place I saw wire wraps and mm. they spoke about them in very interesting ways. They talked about crystals and they talked about them being conscious and having powers and such. So it did feel like entering a magic shop or this like enchanted realm where it's like, Ooh, there's, um, or it kind of felt like going to Hogwarts, you know, where you're like, there's something extraordinary taking place in here that doesn't take place in other um, stores, even if there are other, uh, you know, crystal shops or bead shops. And what they sell is a bunch of crystals, especially Herkman diamonds, um, crystals from all over. They have tons of beads. So you can make your own necklaces mm-hmm. and they have this table in the middle with pliers that you can use and you can work on things while you're there and get their instruction. And then they had some jewelry that they're consigning from other artists. And so it was the first place I ever saw wire up jewelry. And my first thought I remember was like, that is so fucking cool. I want to buy it. I can't begin to afford it. Those are like two or 300 bucks. So I better learn it. And they had spools of wire and they had a bunch of pliers and I had like a $10 weekly allowance, but I bought some spools of wire and I worked with the pliers there and they were so nice. I was talking their ear off every day, but in return, I was getting a free education about crystals and such and in geology. And, you know, I've been around like talkative 13 year olds that they can be annoying, but they're also adorable. And so they put up with me very, very nicely. And they taught me so much. And in the years that I was there, my middle school and high school years and pretty early on, they could see how passionate I was about it. So they gave me my first set of pliers and I'm forever grateful for that. Wow. And I started to make a transfer from, I made tiny origami cranes at that time and I turned them into earrings and they weren't very stable earrings. You know, if you wore them in the rain then time to get a new pair, but they're like five bucks a pair. So they can sign these for me and they didn't charge any consignment rate. They're like, Oh, this kid has ambition. You know, let's, let's show them some support. And um, they let me just have a tiny stand in their shop. And that way I made like over the course of at least a year, a couple hundred bucks. Wow. And I started to be able to go further into wire wrapping and they showed me some other wire wrappers and they told me like, you don't just find these crystals anywhere you go into the woods. They gave me some ideas of spots. I even encountered some abandoned mines and find some crystals, especially when it rains, they rise kind of to the surface. And then I started sneaking out at night and <laughs> um, y- y- don't do this if you're listening, but <laughs> you see spools of wire hanging down from telephone poles. If they're hanging down to like the, the level of your hip. I'd cut those and then I'd strip them and then I'd wire up these gemstones. And then um, the, the bead and gem shop didn't know that I was kind of going to some illegal aspect to do that. 
but they did consign them for me. And there were like four other like mom and pop shops in town that also carried my jewelry for me, like an amazing uh, salon owned by a wonderful woman named Christine and this uh, cafe called old Sal's um, by this amazing man, Chris Connolly. But they all just saw that I was this like ambitious kid. So they weren't trying to make money off of me. They just let me have a stand or a tiny little display in their shop. And I felt, you know, the, the saying it takes a village uh, to raise a child. So God. I got all this encouragement with my wire wrap uh, journey. And then, then came the social media chapter where the internet started to become a living. Yeah. Oh, bless those human beings. Seriously. Yeah. That, that's an amazing story. It takes a village. To yeah. If you're, if you're listening and you got a shop, you know, you have enough space to have some artists in there. If you've yeah. got a cafe, you have walls, you know? And, and I, I also, I also love that you were doing, um, Gorilla wire wrapping <laughs> from the um, from the pieces of wire you got from the um, telephone poles. That's great. Well, you know, I was angsty. I was listening to punk and, and death metal, so <laughs> I had to express my angst in all yeah. sorts of ways. Yeah. Um, another thing, I, I I definitely want to ask you about, and, and this is something this is something I love in your bio. Um, you talk about how um, you went to a number of post-secondary schools like um, um, Boston's Museum of Fine Arts School, uh, Rhode Island School of Design, uh, Savannah College of Art and Design. And you did really well in the classes there, but you found that you um, thrived um, really outside of an academic environment. And um, I'm of the opinion more kids and artists need to hear that message um, specifically that the so-called uh, traditional high school to college um, path doesn't have to be the default, um, yeah. that, that people can follow their passions, practice their craft, um, and even though it might be hard, that they can be successful and fulfilled as people. So I'm just, I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit more about that aspect of your experience. Happy to. Uh, thank you for asking because... Um, you know, one of my aims with um, talking with you guys is that hopefully some nuggets can come out of us that um, can be useful to other artists. And so just a slight correction, I did uh, really well in the Rhode Island School of Design pre-college program. And I did really well in the Museum of Fine Arts Boston pre-college program. And these are in the summertime when mm -hmm. I'm uh, 15 and 16 and they take place in the college um and you live in the dorms there except when i was in the boston one night stayed with my father who lived nearby and you take class it's it's like a college experience more or less you know mm -hmm. maybe a little bit less hardcore but it was still pretty hard and i did well in those but savannah college of art and design is where i went to college and i did two semesters and dropped out and so now i'm an active not literally but i kind of think of myself as like an activist for you don't need art college um, cause creativity comes from within and yeah. they tried to convince me that it cost a quarter million dollars over four years to become creative. And if you're looking for a job in the industry, places like that have connections, but I started to realize about myself that I only ever wanted to be self-employed and also the structure of college and that sort of uh, cultural stampede of must go to high school and then immediately go to college and then immediately get a job in your career without ever taking a sabbatical or even a month. Um, we, it, it, has to be looked at at least a little bit because that hasn't changed in what like 70 years yeah. or more but we have the internet now and if you're disciplined you can teach yourself a lot on the internet you can get a lot of free tutorials for any sort of art form on the internet so you know 
maybe you don't need quite as much schooling. Maybe um, you can reach a certain level of mastery with it before you start schooling. There's special programs like uh, there's um, classes that jewelry makers can take where they're just studying jewelry. And in this college, they made me take English classes that were of a pretty basic level. And I started to get frustrated. I'm like, I'm paying for this. Can I just study jewelry all day? Yeah. Um, but I started to also understand, like I said earlier um, in our talks, that boredom or aversion is an indicator of what your subconscious is asking for. So I think of it as an arrow pointing to, uh, you kind of use it as like an arrow pointing 180 degrees around. So whatever you're feeling bored with, it's trying to tell you to go in the opposite direction to find out what you're excited with. And I did these pre-college programs and coming from this little town where I didn't have a lot in common or get along with everyone, I was extremely excited to be around other young artists all day. It was social life to the max, but I was taking all these different classes and I kept on finding that as soon as I could get a moment away from my homework, I just wanted to wire out more. And yeah. I didn't really look at that too seriously at the time, but looking back on it, you know, especially having dropped out of college, it was like, oh, I should have realized all along that that's what I was into. But at least I experimented, you know, because that kind of yeah, even more reaffirmed in my mind that wire wrapping is where I like it. And I also, in high school, during the high school year, my mother got me into some charcoal drawing classes where I was drawing uh, fabric draped over surfaces with like dramatic lighting. So you can learn how to do shading really well hmm. and nude figures and like models who'd come into the class. And there you learn about things like um, how to create an accurate portrait, um, an impressionist portrait with to capture just the light reflection, the brightnesses and darknesses of skin values at different angles of how the light is hitting it or, or not hitting it very much. You use different line weights, different thicknesses. You use things like crotch hash, cross hatching. You use these different textures and, and, and line weights. And that had nothing to do with wire wrapping, I thought. But now I can see that I'm when I'm wire wrapping, what I'm playing with is um, a symphony or a recipe or rainbow of light reflections, that the very thin wires doing detailed patterns reflect a lot of photons back at your eyes. And a very bare wire with no pattern over it that's thick doesn't reflect in the same way. Mm. So some of the things that I've studied have given me these metaphors that feed into wire wrapping. I was also a very competitive runner and I want to see everyone in this art form succeed, but I'm very competitive too. So other things from your life feed into this, but yeah, I'm a proud college dropout and there's a big story there too. Yeah. that. I, I and thank you for sharing that story. Um, I mean, one of the things we 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 tell our kids, like if if what you are passionate about and what you want to do requires a college degree, by all means, right? Doctors, that's a, yeah, that, doctors. Right, that's a worthy investment. But I don't want a doctor who learned how to do everything on YouTube. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, um, but if you know, if you wanna, if you wanna train horses, like maybe just go out to Wyoming and start working on a horse ranch. Wyoming, oh, wherever they for have sure. horses. I don't know where they yeah, have horses. If you're ambitious, you can also just yeah. ask people who are doing what you'd like to do yeah. and be very polite, you know, and you might get an opportunity. If you're a little kid, then they might just have the reaction of like, oh, how cool that this kid wants to learn, yeah. you know, and you might get that. Or when you're a bit older, just offer someone some value. Be like, I'll make you a painting for your shop, you know, if you can teach me some things about that. Yeah. And I, I loved when you were talking about um, your experience. Um, in, in middle school and high school with the, the Fall Hill um, Gem and Bead Shop, that they let you set up a stand, 
and begin to um, offer your pieces on consignment because it began to, they also gave you an opportunity to learn about the business end of being an artist. Mm -hmm. And you talked to us a little bit about, um, you know, as you've gone along and you're, you're the business part of your work has grown you've brought on an agent to help you with some of the stuff um and i'm just wondering if you have like general thoughts and reflections about like that um that that tension between being an artist but also having to run a a business you know because you have to eat you have to you know you have to buy your materials you have to file your taxes all of that stuff like can, can you share just some thoughts about that um, experience of also having to be a business person and an artist? Absolutely. Um, so I believe uh, in, in the concept of, of Dharma, um, you know, translated simply, um, and this might be an oversimplification of it to maybe someone who's Hindu, where that term comes from, but that your life should be one seamless flow that what you do is ethical and supports you well and helps you be healthy and happy and serves a purpose to the earth. And it doesn't feel like Dharma, like in its most ideal form is you don't even feel like you're going to work. You just continue existing and all goes well. Um, and for me, whether or not I, I would be getting paid, I would still wire up all the time. So that's why, uh, you know, I think of it as Dharma. Um, what really helps is thinking thinking of being a businessman as a creative pursuit that how I get someone to buy something, how I attract a commission, which has been a commissions have been a huge part of my livelihood for years now. Um, it is creative speaking. You know, you catch their heart, you, you make them feel that you get them. And like earlier today, I made a sale, this guy reached out to me, and he was like, I'd like to know where to get your pieces. And I was just like right here in the messages. And he's like, uh, what are your prices? And I, I think I'd like to commission something. And so there's really no information in that. That's very vague. Um, but I looked on my on his profile and then I told him that. I'm like, I've looked on your profile. And all of it was photos of him being way up on mountains and skiing. And so he just loves being around snow and, and this sort of really pure, clear simplicity of being up on mountaintops. And so I said to him, because he had no ideas to work from, he was like, I, I don't know where to begin. I'm like, well, I looked at your profile. I saw these things. What if we made a piece that captured and distilled, um, made an extract and the essence of what you feel in those places? And I explained to him how, like, obviously snow isn't white. It's colorless. It's just stacked and the light reflections make it white. And all of it is made out of six-point symmetry. And so I talked him into... Um, paying me quite well for something that would be using clear quartz crystals and using six point symmetry. So it's mm -hmm. a, it was a creative pursuit to make that pitch to him, you know, and I try to phrase things poetically. So taking the desire to be able to make a living from what you enjoy and making that fruitful, because I definitely knew the struggle for a while. I didn't even have a bed for like eight months of, of like five years ago. Um, I say that like, think, think of yourself as like a tree. And if you're just starting to grow out as an artist and you're just trying to grow as a businessman, cause this advice applies whether or not you're an artist, um, you're trying to grow a tree. Now, how do trees grow? They absorb nutrients. They absorb, uh, multiple forms of nutrients, you know, what's in the soil, what's in the sunlight, what's in the water and the air. Um, 
from many branches and roots. They're not just pulling it in from one funnel. And that's how they grow so big and that's how they become successful in a sense. And so I started to try to gain this perspective of how I could make myself successful. And it wasn't just from being in these little shops downtown. Be there if you can. Get on social media. Um, every single artist nowadays who's trying to make a living should be on social media, hands down, is my opinion. Yeah. Um, and then join a bunch of groups. And, and so as I'm describing this, like think of Facebook and Instagram as two of the main branches coming out of the trunk of a tree. Join groups and learn about hashtags. There you've got some more branches coming off. Make mm-hmm. posts every other day. And really, you're trying to pull in nutrients from all these different angles by doing everything you can that will give you a competitive edge and an opportunity to succeed. So when you speak to customers, be more polite and be more thoughtful in how you can engage their heart and their emotions and what you have to say. And then another thing you can do to give yourself a good angle on success is make more engaging captions that might get more comments so they get more visibility and get boosted more news feeds. And that might come from being more poetic or asking questions or being relatable or using keywords that will help you in the sort of search engine optimization of these sites, um, posting consistently. And, and you can go on YouTube and like find some videos about like social media tips because there's no one secret. Like yeah. people ask me, what is the secret to succeeding on social media? Put a couple years and be super patient and trust it. You know, there's no like one quick hack and people get disappointed when they hear that. But the, the thing about it requires patience to be successful it's a blessing and a curse because you hear that and you're like, oh, I have to put a bunch of time in. But it also means if you do put a bunch of time in an effort, that seed's going to grow. It's going to bloom. It's going to flourish eventually. You yeah. know, it's inevitable. Um, I try to, so that's just like the internet side of things. So you could call that, um, you could call that the branches and then say, we're trying to also suck in nutrients through the roots. Well, I should try to make my wire work cleaner just make it less tool marks, make it neat, make uh, the coils have no gaps between them, make it more perfect in that sense. And then I should also try to be more innovative. And I should uh, therefore also double down at what I'm good at and make several of those, but expand upon it and make more advanced things so people see that I'm capable of both and can do other symbols than what I do consistently. So all of that is just reaching your fingertips in as many places as possible and, and sucking in uh, sucking in the um the nutrients of what can help your business grow so don't rely upon any one thing get better everything you can if you're an artist you're also a business person study business study motivational like something i started doing at uh 12 years old when i moved to this town um i didn't have my own device but my mother uh let me use her laptop all the time um so i had been previously living uh in a pretty wealthy area in Massachusetts, uh, Gloucester, you know, mm-hmm. an hour above Boston. And yep. it's a lot of like mansions on the ocean. And I'd gone to a private school and I had had that experience for a few years. And then when I moved to upstate New York, I was still living well, uh, which I very much thank my wonderful stepfather Al for. But um, I was also surrounded by people who weren't living quite as well. And I hadn't really had a window into that. So it surprised me. Like I remember visiting one of my friends and he took me over to like his room and he opened it. It was just a closet. I was very confused because I mean, I knew poverty existed, but I had just been going to this private school. And so I started to see this all around town that, you know, people lived much more simply and yeah, they were just more poor and, you know, rich in other ways, but poor in in monetary terms. Mm -hmm. And 
So I started to think to myself, I'm like, some of these people don't have the means to take a big break from work. A lot of these people don't have the means to travel the globe. Some of these people don't have the means to get a swimming pool, fancy car, whatever your goal is, or eat super delicious food all the time. Like whatever motivates you to make money, a lot of these people didn't have the means to do all those things. And so I started to think like, well, how do I become one of the people who does have those means? What What is the common factor? I spent a lot of time on my mom's laptop looking up videos on YouTube. And this is another reason like you don't need college for some things is I started listening to tons of interviews of millionaires and billionaires and famous artists of every kind of art, musicians and actors and painters, and them just talking about their journey and their success. Because I had the premonition that there would have to be some common thread, that every person who had made a lot of money and was also fulfilled in their career had something in common. And, and they do. I learned after like hundreds of these, which is a certain mindset that mm-hmm. like you assign yourself your own projects. You know, you you make all your own things happen for yourself. You reach out to people and you ask them for opportunities. You don't wait for them to come to you. There's a lot of common threads and the mindset of someone who's made it far in their business. And so I internalized back then that if you just make this mindset part of your own DNA, if that becomes part of your own brain structure, you will succeed. And I believe that. I love that. Manifest your own success. Yeah. Yes. Um, Tristan, one thing I, I want to ask you, ask you about, and I'm, I'm definitely not asking you about how much you sell your pieces for. Um, you can, you uh, can ask me anything. Yeah, I mean that. I mean, I, I'm. That's the. That's. I, I'm more interested in you, like as an artist, and your process. But and if and if you if for some reason you want to share that, I'll leave that up to you. But I'm really, I'm really curious about what it's like to make a piece um, custom or else and like have to attach a value to that. Um, is that a, is that a, was that a difficult thing for you to have to do initially? And did it get easier for you as you progressed as an artist and in, in your business? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, Cause I hope any of this can be useful to other artists. Like I think, this podcast will get a lot of listeners from other wire rappers. Cause I'm going to post this all around. I really appreciate this opportunity and I'm followed by a few a, a thousand other people who do this art form. And cool. so I, I would love to mention specific numbers in case like my blueprint can be useful. So go back in time. Um, when I was 12, I was sell or, or 13. And I'd started like making wire wraps. Uh, Cause that first year was mostly like origami with a hint of wire. So I, sold necklace pendants that were almost all of them were made from taking exactly one foot of a thick wire and a really like just rough Herkimer diamond, not one of the extremely expensive ones, just mm-hmm. one I'd found. Like you could even find the gravel piles there because they were made from the local stone, um, which result in this effect where when I see other gravel piles, I feel disappointed. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I was selling pendants for five and $10 at the local cafes and then I'd go to the cafes and once a week they'd be like, Hey, you made a few sales. Then I'd buy my friend's treats and that felt nice. And then, um, I was not doing social media just then, but when I started to join these Facebook groups and, um, whatever kind of art form you do, you should find out like what Facebook groups have at least 10,000, but ideally like a hundred thousand or 50,000 or whatever, um, people in them for your specific niches. So I found these wire wrapping groups and I started to see a bunch of other people make a living from doing this. And I very politely reached out to a bunch of them and asked them questions. 
and like a tenth of them got back to me. But that's why you reach your roots and your branches far out because a couple of them might suck in some sunlight and some water and help you grow. So I asked them what they're selling their work for, you know, and, and you can get some information directly from artists that way. But as an artist speaking now, I, at that age, um, like 17, I started selling pieces for 50 to a hundred. I think I might've gotten a few commissions that were like two or 300. Actually, I remember being in gym class once, and this is when I still used Etsy. I don't use Etsy now because, um, actually don't have anything available. I'm, I'm sold out pretty consistently. Yeah. Um, and I do a lot of commissions, but, um, at the time I was using Etsy and I had made this piece that was really ambitious. I kind of sat down one day and I said to myself, I'm like, I've been doing pendants that kind of look like this and that, but I know I'm capable of more. Like, what would it look like if I made something that was actually genuinely difficult, uncomfortable, annoying, and tricky for my hands to do that, that pushed me. And so I did that and I put it on my Etsy and I had my phone with me in gym class and I felt like a vibrate. And this was like a month later and it was a sale notification and I had 500 bucks. And at 17, that was like a million. I was like, yeah. holy shit. <laughs> and so then I placed my first order for silver wire. And that's a big important point about pricing is like, I've been working up in copper mostly to that point for that piece that sold for that much. It was silver plated mm-hmm. wire, which is basically the price of copper. And will eventually tarnish or scrape off. You know, it's not very high quality stuff. Um, but then I had enough money to buy silver wire. And so a pendant, like the size of say a quarter that's made out of silver wire versus copper wire might be at most like $15 more, but you'll be able to sell it for hundreds more or at least a hundred more. It makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. It's like when chefs put a couple fancy little garnishes on it and put it on this cool sleek elongated plate and ask like $20 more for the meal, you know? So in, in every profession, you should find what your little amplifications of value can be like an attractive frame or a nice box and presentation's important. That's actually another like angle of pulling in nutrients from all possible directions is have good photos of your artwork. Take a pretty picture, a uh, picture in nature. You don't need a light box. So many of my earlier photos are on earth backgrounds because I didn't afford a light box mm-hmm. and then crop it. Well, maybe edit it just a little bit, you know, but presentation matters. Um, so I started to be able to sell pieces around 18 flash forward, like one year for two to 300, though a lot of them were like 50 to hundred and something that's been consistent throughout my whole career, my whole life is this interesting phenomena where the kind of prices that I'm able to get the range they go in just kind of climbs a little ladder and I consistently get asked for pieces within this range. And then a few months or a year later, it's this consistent range and people like, especially now have not suggested like, can you make something for $80, you know, anymore? Um, so as an artist, you just want to see what works? Like you'll try to make some Epic pieces and see if you can get a thousand dollars and you might hold it for months and have no results but you might sell a lot for a couple hundred. Um, but don't skip steps, you know, climb your staircase, climb it fast, but don't skip steps. So make pieces consistently for 50 to hundred. Once those have been doing all right for you, make pieces from hundred to 200. Once those have been doing all right for you, make pieces for 200 to 400. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, I can easily, um, get kind of distracted in a specific rant about this, but, um, commissions, 
are a really good way to make money. I know a lot of artists don't like them because they don't want, you know, they want to have total creative freedom, but mm-hmm. I also, you know, I like paying rent and eating. So I, um, those are hobbies of mine. So I, uh, have taken on a lot of those in the past and, and still do because they're guaranteed sales. I tell people, you choose the price and I'll work around it, which guaranteed more or less that people would spend as much as they might anyways, um, which is that line right there is a really important sales strategy because if someone says, here are my ideas, what range would you give me? And you say to them, I think I could do that for 500 to 1,000. Mm-hmm. This person might have $10,000 at their fingertips and be like, right. oh, okay, 500 to 1,000. But they might also have... Um, you know, a hundred dollars. And then you just lost the potential to even make, you know, a, a small sale. Yeah. Um, so I, I tell people you choose the price and I'll work around it. And I create incentive. I'm like, the more you invest, the better it'll be, you know, I'll make price correspond to size, level of intricacy and detail, mm-hmm. gemstone quality and quantity, the precious metals that I can offer you like gold or silver and their ratio. And so you have an incentive to spend more with me. And then I also tell people you, uh, half upfront and half when done, which secures that they'll trust you. It secures that the, you'll have an incentive to finish it faster, not get lazy because you've already um, you know, gotten all the money. And it also creates a potential that they'll spend two paychecks worth of their savings rather than one. So mm-hmm. putting myself out there online and trying to be self-employed from this, you never know how much gold the streets are paved with. And there is more if you grow your following and your friends list and you post in these groups, which give you access to a larger population than your friends list, um, just like hashtags do. But you try those techniques, half up front and half when done, and you choose the price and I'll work around it. And when you look back over the years and you wonder, how much money could I have really made if I did things differently? That's the most. Yeah. If you do that strategy, that's the most you could have made. Other, You can't really know more than that. And um, just to inspire anyone listening. So five years ago, I started being self-employed and that was when I didn't really even have a bed, but I was, I I had like a a very basic couch. Um, And for a while it was just a comforter, but I sold pieces for like two to 300 and I made just enough to get by. And it it was this sort of like um, fascinating thing where I always made enough to get by and it was so bare. It was so close sometimes. Like I Mm -hmm. made rent a few days before it was due, but that also gives me faith, you know, cause I always made it. Yeah. Um, and then about a year and a half later, I started consistently making pieces of like four or 500. And there I started to not be so anxious about like keeping my fridge full. And then, so about now, like three years ago, I was consistently making pieces for like 500 to a thousand and occasionally got like a couple orders for more than a thousand. Mm-hmm. And then I started making pieces like go back two years ago. I had got a lot of orders in between 500 and 2000. Um, but now 500 is the absolute minimum I'll do anything for. Um, but a lot of it's like 1000 to 5000. Yeah. That's amazing. And I love and, um, not, not the, not the figures. What's amazing is the, the, the step word process that you've described yes. right over time. And the, the faith the in yourself and the faith in that you could understand and learn how to figure this out too and make it work for you. I just, that is all amazing to me. Um, Thank you. And I love hearing about it. Um, so kind of trying to wind towards um, wrapping us up here. Um, you've, you've talked wrapping. a little, you've talked, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to give this to myself. 
I did a uh, wire wrapping joke, stomping Jen, and I didn't even mean to. Um, um, so, so you've talked a little bit about how um, innovation is really important to you. And I think you know, somewhere I was reading that you even said you want your legacy to be innovation um, in this yes. kind of art form. Um, what's that going to, what do you think that might look like for you um, as you move ahead? There's just so much similarity in the world of wire wrapping. That's actually part of the reason I haven't made rings as they all look the same. Um, but when the, you're in an art form where it, there's no way to know, but I estimate that there's about a hundred thousand wire wrappers on Facebook and Instagram combined. Um, wow. If you want to make money from this, you got to stand out. And, you know, I, f- I feel that I do, especially because uh, the geometric angles. And so I just want like, my social media presence and, and my presence in general to remind wire rappers or just artists in general, study well what everyone around you is doing and do it differently as much as possible. And naturally that'll help business. Um, but if you stay comfortable, you will become stagnant. And I don't mean that to be purely critical. There's a lot of value to staying comfortable too. Like there's specific symbols that I get ordered a lot for me because someone will see them like, oh, I like that piece, but could you do it with purple? And so that's, you know, bread and butter. It's good money. I'm not going to turn that down. And no matter, even if I find the order not extremely exciting, I love doing all of it. There's just mm-hmm. different, you know, there's a different spectrum of love. And um, so I, uh, let me think. I, um, there are these things that I can do really well every time. And I know other artists have found their bread and butter pieces, make those try to innovate upon those a little bit, you know, make the frames a bit more cool, set some extra gems, do some modifications. Um, But if you only make those pieces that, you know, you can make well every time your creative evolution is taking a pause or very barely walking up a, 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 you know, small slope or something. But, um, if you consistently make pieces where you're like, wow, this is genuinely tricky for me to do. I'm not sure if I can get that wire in there and get my hand under that corner. And this is using like my full brain. I feel like, you know, hours of math class, like this is making my head buzz. Um, you got to do that. And, or I recommend doing that because you'll go further and we're in control of the rate at which our art evolves. And I've studied so many other artists without saying any names. I can think of plenty of artists off the top of my head who are, who their art looks the same as it did five years ago or 10 years ago. And also uh, plenty of artists who have evolved rather rapidly. Mm-hmm. Like I have seen. Um, so when I started being on social media around 10 years ago, wire wrapping was still rather new and social media is rather new uh, between 2004 and 2007 Facebook, Instagram, and Etsy, which are the main outlets on the internet to see wire apps by far, uh, all of those sites went public. Mm-hmm. So it's crazy recent. And so 10 years ago, Facebook groups started being really common. 10 years ago, I started being in those Facebook groups and there were way less wire wrappers. I would estimate back then it was about 10,000 online. And I think it's grown tenfold since then, but who really knows? And so there were a couple names that if you were wire wrapping a couple of these groups, you're like, oh, those are the OGs, you know, those are the original gangsters. Those are the um, top guys in this art form. Those are the big leagues and um, within wire wrapping. And so those are some of the people I messaged in the beginning to try to like maybe get a few responses and get some tips. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I've gone further in this art form, I still remember those names, you know, and a lot of other wire wrappers. If you ask them, they're like, oh yeah, there's a the kind of famous ones, but I remember seeing one of them post a really stressed out post. And I did feel sorry for him for sure. But he posted, he's like, 
I was one of the OGs of this art form. I was one of the crates. Like I got this art form off the ground. I helped start it. And now I'm having a hard time, like feeding my family. And that's tragic, you know, but I, you look at his art, he has not changed a thing about it in like 15 years. It looks the same. I mean, it's a little bit cleaner, but it really looks the same. And, you know, it doesn't make you a bad person or anything, but I, I thought, so just emphasizing, I don't wish that upon anyone, but I thought about that and I'm just like, well, how could you expect that? That's a little bit presumptive. Like this art form is so new. How could you climb to a certain ledge and then think, yeah, no one's ever going to climb higher than this. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm set here. That's like a musician releasing a hit album being like, all right, I can take a few years off. Right. And those are why we know those people as one hit wonders generally, you know? Um, so I realized like when I created the flower of life, it went hugely viral, you know, no one had ever done anything quite like that. And I made a few more and they stayed kind of similar, but I had that example in my mind. And so I'm always kind of looking around the corner or looking over the next like ridge and just thinking like, what can I do that's still tricky for me? Cause in a few years or in a few months, someone else is going to be able to make this flower of life or something just as cool. Yeah. And in a hundred years, people will make things that make everything I look like, look like my first paperclip sculptures. And because I was a runner and that flowed into like the metaphors that I think of my art. And if you stop on the trail or you stop on the track, you're getting past. So don't let it make you anxious, but let it make you excited. You yeah. know, I love that. Um, geez, we've, we've covered, we've covered so much and I'm, I'm, I'm deeply appreciative of the, um, the, the thoughtful conversation we've had i just i want to ask you if there's um anything else you wanted to make sure that we covered for you and stomp i'll just point out stomping jen is, is smiling at me because this is a question she has over over hundreds of episodes now has has hammered into my head that i have to make sure i don't forget to ask so <laughs> no. uh, i won't take credit for asking this alone <laughs> well thank you sawtooth um no, I, I have to say, I really appreciate you guys giving me this opportunity. My intention going into this is like, hopefully I could get some good rants out that would be useful for other artists and inspiring. Yeah. Um, and it feels good to tell your story. I'm naturally a pretty talkative person. So you guys gave me license to be that. And I appreciate that. Um, let me, let me just think for a second. I've got two. Um, if, while you're thinking about that, I've got two kind yeah. of fun questions. We like, sure. we like to en- end with, um, so I know you put a lot of time um, into into wire wrapping and your art. And is there anything you like to do? Kind of um, you'd put into the purely for fun category that sits outside of wire wrapping and art. Um, well, I haven't taken an entire day. I take hours off, but I haven't taken an entire day off in about a year and a half. Um, fun. I mean. <laughs> What's that? I work on myself. I do some yoga. I do some push-ups. I drink tea. I uh, I go for a hike. Um, I love tea. I don't really even read books. I listen to a lot of audiobooks um, and, and podcasts too to learn. I like educating myself for sure, but um, or entertaining. But I don't really read anything with my hands because it takes away from the time I can spend wire wrapping. Mm. So part of that is because I have a responsibility to people who have ordered pieces for me. But also, I'm just batshit passionate. I love it. So, yeah. other hobbies like I like to play frisbee with my friends. I like to go biking, but I don't have anything that like comes even close to you know how much I'm obsessed with wire wrapping. And I think oh. I, you know, 
I love that you answered that way because I've, I've asked a number of questions and have gotten answers that made me think I need to think about how I ask that. I'm going to think about that word fun. I think I need to find a different word, Stomping Jen. Interesting. So thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to take Marking back, that down. I'm taking that question back to the drawing board. Okay. Fulfilling. Yes. Um, fulfill- oh, I like that. All right. I'm going to write that word down. Um, this last kind of, um, I don't want to use the word fun again, but um, <laughs> a question we love to ask people, and I'm sorry if this comes a little as a surprise, but we've we've asked this. Some people have answers right away, others don't, but it's, um, what have you experienced that you can't explain or have a hard time explaining? <laughs> it's a funny question. <laughs> Tell us about what you can't talk about. Um, put into words what doesn't fit into words. Um, well. Would mystical music help? I have some. Hold on. Oh my god. Okay. Stomping Jen gets mad every time I play this mystical music. So I'm happy to talk on this. I don't want to freak any viewers out, and I certainly don't want to create any prescriptions or recommendations for people. Sure. But something that's been hugely inspirational for my art um, are some experiences that I started having um, around my senior year in high school. And they're what directed me towards um, sacred geometry specifically. Mm -hmm. And they introduced some new neural pathways to think about creativity uh, creativity differently and sort of make more contact with where creativity comes from. Because I still stand by it comes uh, through us, not from us. Sure. Um, I had psychedelic experiences. And the experiences that psychedelics can facilitate can be found if you go very deep into meditation or you do other things to get into trance states. Yeah. Um, but they're incredibly profound and unique experiences. And so I remember um, my very first acid trip and I was outside with friends in nature. And, you know, if anyone's listening to me and thinks that this is advice that I'm giving somehow, just be very safe and do it with friends, um, especially if one's sober, you know, um, yeah. But uh, in, in all your research and such, but I'm just saying that I did it, not to do it. And I was lying down in a field, looking up at the sky and looking up at the clouds and feeling really great and curious and wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw all the clouds turn into that flower of life symbol. Mm. And maybe someone doesn't even know the symbol, so they should Google it or, or find it on my profile. But it literally became that. And just as clear as you see each other in in that room that you're in looking at each other, there was absolutely 0.0% of a doubt that the flower of life was right in front of me. And I still don't really understand the mechanics of how that's possible, but it filled me with the depths of inspiration. Like you travel, you get re-inspired, you see some other part of the country that has a different vibe, you get inspired. But I've seen many times I've gone back the world transform around me into a geometric geometric cathedral made out of love and understanding. And in these states, I've cried tears like a child, like a toddler. I've had my jaw hit the floor and I've received um, almost like a voice speaking to me, uh, guiding me and saying that if I create art to express these things, then my life would go well. That in turn for making these visions, come to being almost like an angelic promise that if I promise to make these visions uh, exist, then I would be taken care of, that I would be looked out for. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. 
Yes. And um, we we had a um, we had a shamanic coach on um, a few episodes ago, and we we did Ooh. talk we talked a little bit about um, plant medicine mm-hmm. and the um, the experiences that those things can provide. Um, and how well, you asked can... me earlier. Sorry. Yeah. No. Please go. Oh, you asked me earlier about you know what I do in between pieces to kind of clear myself and get into a meditative state. Yeah. So I don't really do. Um, some of the more intense psychedelics is often anymore because mm-hmm. you got to integrate those experiences and, 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 and as an artist, there's two forms of integration. So I was doing it, sitting with those medicines consistently for a while. And then I sort of got the message to take a break and, yeah. and even to stop. And I ignored that message and then had some negative experiences. Then I really got the message like, all right, stop. And you got to integrate them um, before you return or just integrate them in general. And so integration comes in the form of take what you've learned about how to communicate more compassionately and do it. Reach out to everyone you love and tell them that you love them and tell them why and reach out to everyone who you've ever hurt and apologize and apologize correctly. And that's the integration that you should do as a person who's trying to be your best. But if you're an artist, there's another form of integration where I, during my senior year, went off and had this experience so many times that now the integration looked like I had been filled with decades worth of inspiration. I got to catch up. I got to create it, you know? Um, so I don't kind of go into those more hardcore experiences anymore. Cause I'm still catching up on years and years. I feel like during these experiences, I saw art that I'm still 50 years away from making Wow. Um, that, you know, that, no way to describe it, but the yeah. temples are the closest thing I can think of. Um, and I, yeah, I got to catch up on that. But now before I go into some of my uh, artistic states, I'll sit with a medicine called Hape that comes from the Amazon and is only ever blended by the shamans of indigenous tribes. There's no other origin to it. Or if, if there is, that would be a scam. Mm-hmm. Um And it's a very finely ground tobacco powder mixed with the ashes of other sacred plants Mm -hmm. in the Amazon rainforest. And you very carefully blow a little bit of it into your nostrils and it can definitely help a few visions come through. You don't necessarily hallucinate, but it also clears you out. It humbles you. You kind of might have to look at some parts of yourself that might be intense. And the process of clearing is like forgiving, accepting, um, understanding and releasing all the baggage you've been holding on to. And so I do, diff- I sit with different shamanic medicines um, like that, or another one called Sananga that's administered into the eyes. And these kind of like clean the slate for a little bit. Yeah. Like that's on you to do the work with these medicines. There's self responsibility where you surrender to them and respect these medicines with your presence. But the result is afterwards and you know, these medicines are like an hour or two hours at most to sit with. Um, afterwards, I feel like I've cleaned the state uh, slate again. Like my mind is clear. I feel very peaceful. I feel very pure. I'm not holding on to any grudges or, or anger and ideas come through me like so fast because my mind is clear. So that's not necessary. Meditation is an amazing tool. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, they go well together. Yeah. Well, th- um, thank you for um, sharing that and, and talking about that with us. I, I, I appreciate it. So, And then you. that also calls in a specific inspiration. It's not just about a blank slate. I'm trying to capture the reverence of nature. And these types of medicines are 
things that put you in the front seat of looking at how much nature should be revered. And you might cry about what's happening with the rainforest, but then you might feel even more motivated to make a tree of life pendant that shows how beautiful trees are. Yeah. Wow. I love that. I love the connectedness of all of that. Everything's interconnected and wire wrapping is one of the best art forms to show that because you've got hundreds of different wires connecting to each other and wires connecting from one part on the piece to another part that's far away. And then another part that's close and a you know, it's, it's like a epic constellation where every single star has lines going from it to every other single star. So it's, you know, a totally, well, I guess the end result is wire app, but it's, it's hard to articulate. It's better to express in wire, you know, yeah, I speak more fluently in wire, but it's <laughs> the epitome of everything being interconnected. Yeah. And we will, and, and, um, as we're, as we're gonna, um, I think wrap up this again, Stomping Jenna. I, I can't get away from that. Um, we want to remind people that, um, like Tristan just said, right? His um, his art. You've got it. You've got to see it. Um, really. Yep. Um, so go to his page. Check it out. Um, Gemhenge on the web. Um, he has a Facebook page. He has an Instagram. And my Facebook page is just my name, Tristan yep, Dunn. Tristan Dunn. But Instagram is also Gemhenge. Yep. So people, please go. Look at um, Tristan's artwork. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'm sure you're going to be inspired, like I was by them. Um, you know, my inspiration was to reach out to Tristan, have this co- have this really awesome conversation. Like I can't I can't tell you how much I appreciate um, all we've talked about and and, and, lear- and learning from you. And like I said at the start of this thing, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. I love talking to artists. I just I feel yeah. like artists have so much insight into the into into the per- the experience of being a human into the world so um tristan thank you so much for joining us i mean we're almost up thank on you two- so much for having me yeah we're almost up on two yeah. hours here um yeah. that's I, mean, amazing. I certainly don't mind yeah um listeners yeah what do we need to say stomping jen we love you right we do we do love you we um love you for lots of reasons uh, for listening for Sharing with a friend. Sharing with a friend. Subscribing, downloading. Subscribing, and just being with us on our journey. Mm-hmm. Right? We're going to hit our three-year anniversary here. We have an anniversary spectacular spectacular. We're going to have to plan an anniversary spectacular. So Probably need an anniversary pendant or something. <laughs> yes, I, I love it. I love, how, I love how this connects back to our themes. Um, possibly Stomping Jen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um Tristan, again, I just, I have to say thank you so much. Um, and any, any final words that you want to leave on? Thank you so much. Like it's, it's truly mutual. This is not a chore. This has been very fun. You're a great interviewer too. Both of you are. Oh, um, thank you. And thank you got you. great chemistry as, as thank I hope you. a married couple would. <laughs> thank <laughs> I you. appreciate you saying that. All right, listeners. Um, oh, go ahead, please. Yeah. Well, in the assumption that some of the people who've listened this far are listening because they're hoping for some useful nuggets of inspiration or some tips. You know, I talk about the business angle. I talk about getting on social media. I talk about asking questions to people who are succeeding at what you want to do. And if anyone's making a living from something you want to do one day, that means it's possible. If someone isn't making a living from it yet, that still doesn't mean it's not possible. But aside from the business angle and everything, the job of an artist is to realize or is to determine and then act upon 
what you can do to get out of your own way for art to come through you. So this, this metaphor that I'd just like to give people to visualize real quick is imagine that all the things that will ever be discovered in the universe, all great ideas already exist and they're trapped in a glacier that's melting at the top of a mountain. And so evidence of that is things like, um, you think of the Pythagorean theorem, this nice clean mathematical expression to uh, help you with the right angles, triangles and such that existed before someone wrote it down. That was already true. Mm -hmm. And every song that's ever been made is a possible combination of sounds and vibrations that was possible before someone put it together and endless other examples. All architecture is a way that you could have stacked stones from the beginning of time. So everything that could possibly be done exists in an invisible space that hasn't been pulled into reality yet. And that's what I make contact with when I create. And that's why I've gotten value out of those experiences that I just mentioned, but I also think meditation is important, is you are a bridge between those places. You are a divine portal. And so don't take that as a metaphor. Take that extremely seriously. I mean, that's literally as possible. So all those ideas, it's referred to as the Akashic Records um, in some traditions. Imagine it is this glacier way up upon a mountain and it's melting down the mountaintop. And as it becomes to melt, it's melting through one waterfall. And the waterfall is a human species because with a couple exceptions of birds um, and a few types of fish, we're the only uh, species that make art. And the waterfall flows through us and then it branches into rivers. And so think of the rivers as painters, as people who draw, as musicians, as sculptors and, and, and dancers and singers. And so it branches into main art forms, this waterfall of creativity um, that's melting from this glacier of all creativity that is yet to be seen. And it's an infinite glacier that creativity will never run out. I, I, I say that confidently, but I also haven't lived to a billion years yet. So um, <laughs> I love that. Or maybe we have, you know, but yeah. um, so then you've got this waterfall flowing into say 10 or 20 different art forms in the broadest terms. And then sculpture could branch into carpentry, architecture, uh, stone carving, glass blowing, origami, you know, and a bunch of others. But one of those um, would be metalworking and then metalworking just going further down the waterfall, you know, just like tree branches, branch off a branch off a branch is um, off metalworking would be all the kinds of jewelry and also welding. And the other kinds of jewelry, some of them are called fabrication uh, jewelry and casting and beading. And then one of them is also wire wrapping and off of wire wrapping, uh, however you want to branch it, maybe you could say there's geometric wire wrapping and then there's organic or abstract wire wrapping. And then there's more branches off of that. And the end result is these single droplets, which are the pieces that we produce. And we are, as artists, the final steps, those droplets coming out from us. So everything we hold as our art is something that has manifested from the realms of the imagination, which is a real place. And when you create art, you're beginning to make a map of this infinite realm. You're beginning to hold droplets in your hand from this invisible, intangible, ephemeral glacier at the top of the mountain. So it's coming from there and it's coming through to you. So, you know, you are that portal for that, not the very source of it. It comes through you. So the end game about all of this to make great art, which will in turn result in you making more money and, and reaching the goals from that is seeing what you can do to get out of your own way so that this glacier can make it all the way down the mountain and go through you undisturbed 
take the little stones out of your stream, take the sticks that have fallen over, try to remove your hateful perspectives, try to clean up your karma. By no means am I perfect at these things, but try to quiet your mind, your thoughts, your doubts, your limitations, try to eat healthy, try to stretch, clear yourself in every way that you interpret that, clean your room, especially clean the space around you, make your bed, you know, and then you can hold that droplet in your hand that got unaffected on the way down, but just came through purely. And people will recognize that. They will recognize that it came from a divine source of inspiration and they'll give you really good money for it. And then you'll get to go to Costa Rica and eat at a restaurant for three meals a day and hang out on the beach and wire app all day. God, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, listeners, Thanks for I, me get that out. I, listeners, I can't add any more, so I'm going to end it. You know how I'm going to end it, listeners. Bye now. Bye now. Bye now. This world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility. That all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity. And that the sources, scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth. And that in the goodness of time, all peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed by the binding force of mutual respect and love. I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road. 